Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. When I was growing up in Kenya, we were fortunate enough to go on safaris to some of our national parks. The Maasai Mara was one of the most popular parks that we visited. And when I close my eyes, even to this day, and think of my happy place, it's the Mara. So when I read about Valerie Nasoisa in National Geographic and the amazing work that she does on saving poisoned vultures in the Mara, I had to have her tell her story. Valerie Nasoisa was inspired to pursue a degree in wildlife conservation by the abundant and diverse wildlife she observed growing up in the Mara. Now with the Peregrine Fund, Valerie has a very difficult job of educating and teaching local Maasai communities about the benefits of vultures and to stop poisoning them. Even though Valerie is fairly new in her professional journey, I consider her a conservation hero. We talked about the challenges of being a Maasai woman in conservation. We also talked about her passion for vultures and what her days look like in the field trying to provide immediate medical treatment for poisoned vultures and the conflict that has led to this outcome. It was an absolute pleasure having her on Breaking Green Ceilings, and I hope we get to see more women like her in Kenya and Africa. I hope you enjoy this episode. So we're here with Valerie Nasoita, if I'm saying that correctly. It's December 13th at 3.14 p.m., and we're having our interview here in Nairobi. So Valerie, thank you so much for having us get some insight into your life. I read an article about you in Amazingira Yetu, and I was completely fascinated that a woman is dedicated to saving the lives of what a lot of people think are very ugly birds. <laughs> and people think that their vultures are a menace, but a lot of people don't know that they are critical to our ecosystem. And you'll tell us a little bit more in detail about that. So I thought it would be helpful for us to just get started about telling us a little bit about yourself and we'll take the conversation from there. Okay, thank you for having me too. And uh, my name is Arbalarina Soita Sangok and uh, I was uh, born and raised in Narok County and also I grew up among animals, wildlife. <laughs> So we interacted a lot, a lot with the wildlife in the Mara. And I also studied wildlife management in Kenya Wildlife Service Training Institute. And that is when I was growing up, I came to like the animals. That is why I, I came to study wildlife management and also job opportunities. That is what we always look when you go to study colleges or universities. So we have a Maasai National Reserve. Jobs are mostly available for those who, who study. And for us girls, it is always a, it is not that easy to go and study in colleges or universities. So I really thank my parents that I came to study in college. Right. Yeah. And tell us where Narok is for those people who are not familiar with Kenya. And explain to us what the environment looks like. What's the geography? Okay, Narok County is in the Rift Valley. Most people know Masai Mara. It's in the country which is Masai Mara National Reserve is 
is based there. And people from Narok County are pastoral list. Most of them are from married areas. Like uh, in my primary school, I, the school was called the uh, Holland Tourism Zone. It was uh, kids, it was founded for the pastoralist children to go and study. So when the parents take uh, cows or livestock to, to go and look for water or pasture, the children are used to be left in, in the school. So the parents will just go and leave the children in school. And it is also among the richest counties in culture, the Maasai culture. Where even if uh, most of the Maasai are educated, most of them do not forget their culture. Because this is one of the things that gives them jobs in the Mara. Singing, dancing, and also these uh, attires, Maasai attires. So it is among the tourist attractions in, in Kenya country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're part of the Maasai community, but we have several subgroups under the Maasai community. Which one do you come from? I'm a Maasai and I'm a Puko. A Puko? Yeah. I've never heard <laughs> of that. I'm just only familiar with, I guess, the Samburu. Are they? Yeah, Samburu yes. from Samburu County. Of course. And then uh, who are the other common tribes? There are uh, people from Kilgoris. Okay. There are people from uh, Naro County who are uh, in Puko. And uh, there are people from uh, there are others who are called Syria. And so there are also others from um, Suswa, Lodongilani. So there are many of them. It's really hard for me to even yeah. try to think how to pronounce it. Yeah. <laughs> but it sounds beautiful because growing up in Nairobi, we mostly heard, we were taught in Swahili in primary school and then in, as well as in English. And um, most of the tribes that we had an opportunity to interact with were, quote-unquote, the more common tribes like the Kikuyu, Luya, Luo, so Kisi, etc. And so we were more familiar with hearing their languages around us, but with Maasai, it's not a very common language that you hear. What's the lifestyle of the Maasai community in general? I know each and every tribe has different cultural uniqueness, but... The Maasai, as they are an indigenous tribe, and they're one of the last few tribes who are actually a migratory tribe, right? What was your experience growing up as a Maasai girl in your culture? It is fun, at the same time challenging, because uh, the time we were born, like people were still uh, not so interested with education, so... Livestock was the only thing that the Maasai people uh, were after. Like the pastoralist, when it is time like dry season, they will have to migrate to find the pasture and water for their livestock. So you see, like people used to change places. You can find, like now, there are so many people using the same surname. And that is why the reason being, when the people were migrating to place to find fast and water for their livestock, they used to like when you go to a place, one of your relatives remained there, the others move on with their journey. So it is interesting. But the Maasai, even if education or Western culture is now in the Maasai community, 
their livestock is they are still keeping their livestock. Yeah. Livestock is a big part of the culture. Yeah. For sure. One of the things that you mentioned is that Western culture is starting to influence Maasai culture. What are some of the ways in which Western culture is impacting your communities? Changing of the culture. Like uh, most of the children nowadays, they come from their homes and come to to Nairobi or other places to study. Mm -hmm. And from there, the the culture changes. Like the way the master used to dress nowadays, it's only a few of them who dress like that. And also, positively, the girls are now educated. Not like uh, before, they used to neglect girl education. What were the common, I guess, gender roles that women played and men played in Maasai culture? Like uh, women used to make houses and um, also they used to bring our, uh, up their children. Like they will not go anywhere. Their job is just uh, bring up kids, look after the little uh, goats and sheep. So that was their job. Okay. Men used to go and look after the livestock. When there's not rain, they used to take the livestock to find fast and water. It's a challenging life experience when we don't have water and you have to travel for miles for your livestock yeah. to get access to that. And I remember living in Nairobi, our house is just right at the edge of the Nairobi National Park. And so when we used to have droughts, often we would see the Maasai herdsmen with all of their cattle on Mombasa Road. <laughs> and looking for that, water. Yeah, looking for water. And then the grass was greener on that part of Nairobi. So, But I know that they traveled for miles just to be able to feed their livestock. But I thought that was the unique experience growing up in Nairobi to actually see traditional ways of life still being practiced in a city or a culture that is increasingly becoming westernized. So I really appreciated that. One of the things that you said is when you grew up in Narok, you had an opportunity to observe nature. And so you saw a lot of animals and that's what got you interested in wildlife, but also because there's an opportunity for you to get a job in doing wildlife conservation. And your father encouraged you to do that, which I think is awesome. So tell him thank you. <laughs> when you got into doing your diploma in wildlife conservation. What did that experience look like? What do you guys learn? And then how did you end up becoming a vulture liaison? <laughs> <laughs> okay, we were learning so many things in Kenya Wildlife Service. Because in school, you have to like study the units. So there was a unit for birds, mammals, reptiles, mm -hmm. and uh, you had to specialize in one of the units. So I used to like uh, birds and plants because I was hoping to be a naturalist in one of the big camps in Mara. So I was studying mostly birds. And when I went to my attachment in one of the conservancies, Mara North Conservancy, after finishing, I got an internship with the Masai Mara Wildlife Conservancies. And I met one of the guys who was doing a, a PhD in University of KwaZulu-Natal, mm -hmm. South Africa. 
His name is Eric Rayson. So sometimes we used to go with him to to the field. He could ask me and the names of the vultures, the species, and most of the animals. So from there, that is when I developed an interest after I came to know Rayson. And when he was doing his uh, research, he told me to be one of the data collectors. So that is when I started uh, loving uh, working around the vultures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How many types of vultures do we have in East Africa or I guess Kenya? Let's start with Kenya. <laughs> Kenya, I'm not sure, but uh, I can say nine. Nine. I'm not wrong, okay. but I'm not sure. <laughs> so in Narok County, what are the most common vultures that we find? Okay, the Mara Rupels, the Rupel vulture, the lapet faced vulture, the whiteback, the white-headed, and the wooded. Mostly the those are the ones you can spot. Okay. And why are vultures important to our ecosystem? Okay, to, they are important to the environment because they help to clean the environment. And also when they, like livestock, like sheep or a cow dies, grew a, a disease like anthrax, the, the vultures are the only ones that can clean the carcass. So they, are, they clean the environment and they reduce the spread of the diseases to the people and also to the livestock. What is it within the anatomy of the vulture that allows it to be immune from anthrax? I think it's only the strong immune that cannot kill or it is only able to die through a poisoning. Yeah. Because you cannot get a, a vulture dying because of a disease. No, it is only really? through poisoning. Yeah. They don't die of it. So if in the natural lifeline of a vulture, they would die out of old age. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How natural old do causes. They, natural causes. Yeah. Okay. And how old do they get? Like their lifespan? Yeah. Maybe 30 years. 30 years? Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. But vultures are endangered in Kenya yeah. and also for the most part in East Africa because... For some reason, we think that they're pests, they're ugly animals, and our communities aren't fully aware about their importance in the ecosystem, which you explained to us what those are. Tell us about how they get poisoned. Okay. Most of the vultures are poisoned through retaliation. Like people, when tradition cases or conflicts between uh, the wildlife and the livestock, people retaliate. Like you can find somebody during the night, Aena breaks uh, into the boma and it kills all the sheep or even the cows. So like last week, there was a case of a man uh, last week, but one, a guy who, who is that sheep were killed in one night and one calf. So through that, uh, like, it's so painful for a mother to lose all those livestock. So people retaliate. They just poison one, take one of the sheep, they poison it, and they leave it for the hyenas or the lions to eat. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And you mentioned the word bomas. Yeah. Bomas are the enclosement within enclosement, which the Maasai yeah. community live in. Where they keep their livestock. Where they keep the livestock. Yeah. Okay. And what do they use to poison the sheep? 
they can use uh, pesticides mm-hmm. or even the this medicine that people use to wash their the animals oh. carboforens there's one which is normally used by the Maasai a lot Yeah. So it's red in color mm. like the last incident uh, the carcass that we saw the teeth were red like totally red so meaning that the poison was so strong that is why in less than 10 minutes more than f- four or uh, six vultures were dead what is the psychology behind retaliating in the sense that Are they thinking that okay the hyenas and the lions are going to learn that the livestock are poisoned therefore they're not going to that the the predators are not going to attack them again or is it just out of pure anger what is it just out of pure anger then you maybe some of them you know the compensation because some of the conservancies compensate and even Kenya Wildlife Service compensate but it takes time Mm-hmm. some of them even they stay for years with and they forget about it so it's like that anger and then there's no it's better for them to poison and also kill their wildlife than just thing without getting some nothing mm-hmm. and their livestock have been killed yeah it's definitely an emotionally driven reaction because these livestock are their livelihoods that is what and most of them they educate their kids through the livestock they feed their families through livestock so you can imagine if you had taken the livestock to the market and sell all that that sheep in and then you imagine that they yeah. have been killed so painful it is yeah and then you said that the Kenya Wildlife Service they take time to give them compensation and then even the compensation is not necessarily equal to the amount of what they can get if they sold the livestock in the local market yeah. so you work with the peregrine fund but before that you worked for about four years with the Kenya Wildlife Service no, no. i knew I studied in Kenya Wildlife Service Institute mm-hmm. but I stayed in the Mara from when I was in attachment okay so, so after attachment then you I got took the... an internship with the Masai Mara Wildlife Conservancy how, how long was the the internship for one year one year yeah and then after that you I joined the, the Peregrine Fund okay yeah so you're you're still fairly young in your profession yeah. <laughs> I've just been in with the Peregrine Fund for two years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in total, yeah, you've had uh, two years of, I guess, full-time work experience, but one year internship. How are you feeling so far about your career choice two years in? <laughs> It's nice because I got to work with the people who have experience in conservation, like my former director, Dr. Munir Birani, mm-hmm. and also Eric Rayson. like he has been so very good role model yeah. yeah so they've been your mentors helping you sharing their knowledge with you yeah. and providing you with support when you find the vultures that have been poisoned so tell us what a day in your life looks like as a vulture liaison okay like uh, usually when i'm in my working day 
I wake up in the morning, I start, because we have like informers everywhere. So in the conservancies, like the rangers, I call them to know if there has been any incident or uh, any prediction cases around the area. So if there's any, no any incidences, I just uh, go to uh, to the patrols if the car is available or if I get time. So we go look for the vultures in the conservancies. And after that, sometimes I also have a community barazas. Community meetings. Yeah. Yeah. Where we go to talk to community about the importance of the vultures and also the importance of conservation. And mostly I organize uh, with community, but we also do schools. Like teach the kids how the importance of the vultures, conservation. Mm-hmm. So that is usually my day, how my day looks like. When you are conducting those barazas, I understand you're often the only woman in these male-dominated environments. What does it feel like? What do you observe in terms of how you are treated or perceived? in the community when you go to have those meetings? Okay. Like in community, most of the men do not, uh, it's hard to talk to them because mostly they expect that you have to give them something in return for you to give them information that you have about your organization. So they will start comparing you, your organization without the organization. Like they will tell you, you know, last time this organization came, they brought this, they came with these things. So what have you brought to us? And sometimes they will ask, like, you know, in the Maasai community, a girl cannot stand in front of men and start talking. So it's always challenging. Like some of them do not even take serious of anything you are telling them. And if you have like uh, something like allowance, they'll just sit there for you to, to finish. So they will get the allowances, but they will not take anything serious that you are saying. Right, because you're a woman. Yeah. And traditionally, the women are not supposed to be addressing men yeah. directly. Yeah, but it's not all of them. Like it's only go through the interiors. Like, I only experienced that in the Transmara okay. from the Syria people. So, yeah, Syria. Yeah, the other side of Narrow County. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's not bad. It's not that all the communities yeah. think that way. And I guess with time... They will all change. Yeah, they will yeah. all change. It's a challenge. And the allowance, I'm guessing it's financial? Yeah. Yeah. So... What is a reasonable allowance? And do you give it per person or just in one whole big pot? And then they decide how to distribute it among us per person. Okay. Wow. So if we know that they're only sitting there and not listening to us because of the money, do we think it's an effective method? Okay, it's not all of them that react that way. Mm-hmm. Most of them are, like when you go to some of these areas, they are conservancies, stakeholders, landowners. Mm-hmm. They are interested with such information. Yeah. So like a large population of them, they are taking the information seriously. Yeah. yeah. 
So, okay, we're only talking to the men because they're the ones that manage the livestock. Yeah, but we also talk to women. Okay, okay. Because most of them nowadays, they are, they are given a leadership opportunities. Mm, within their communities. Okay. And you, you meet like some of, even the women are stakeholders and landowners of these conservancies. Mm. They also make a big uh, change in the community. Yeah. Yeah. And have we seen a reduction in the poisonings of the, the vultures over the past two years or just as far as we know in terms of the statistics? Are we seeing a reduction? Or? Yeah, it's reducing from the time we started, uh, like the area that I was in last year, we have never had any incidences of poisoning mm-hmm. in this central area and western area of the Mara. Of the Mara, okay. So we never had any incidences. But before, where are the most number of poisonings? Which part? In the Mara or in the in in Kenya? Because Kenya. mostly I have colleagues from Hamboseli okay. and from Kaputé uh, area. Mm-hmm. So most the research that uh, Eric was doing, because he is my coordinator, mm-hmm. he we found out that it was uh, in Kapute area, just near uh, Nini. This area of Kitengela, Nairobi National yes, Park. Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh. That is the leading area. Wow. I would think that the poisonings would be more in the more remote parts of Kenya because it's difficult to reach them. And therefore, they don't have, they've not been educated or trained about the importance of not poisoning, but Kitengela is right here in Nairobi. Yeah, but you know, the people from remote areas like the Amara, yeah. they can change this like nowadays they don't poison because they know that the livestock that they are poisoning mm-hmm. is the one that they are giving them jobs. They, it is educating their children. And also the Kenya Wildlife Service nowadays uh, is giving a lot of uh, punishment even like fines so people are they see that others who did the other crimes they are being uh, charged mm-hmm. by the Kenya Wildlife Service so they are learning from other people's mistakes okay. yeah <laughs> but you know in this area like Tengela I think it's only like they do not depend so much on their life they have other things to do that give them employment and like businesses, yeah, they don't depend so much on like wildlife, like in the Mara. So in the Mara, for example, it's the livestock that the predators are attacking. In Kitengela, it's the infrastructure or... It is also livestock. Okay. But, you know, most of them do not even work for... There's no any camps around or maybe they are not even... In the national Nairobi National Park, yeah. working. So maybe when you find somebody's livestock have been attacked, he doesn't even think twice. It's just poisoning. Yeah. yeah. Is there a vulture liaison in that area? That's yeah. Okay. It's there. One. Are they part of the Peregrine Fund as well? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. One thing I forgot to ask you is in the articles I see pictures of you leaning over the vultures. And they explain that you provide them with sort of like emergency medical help. 
I think that's really cool. <laughs> what does that entail? Because I don't have much knowledge on how you would kind of revive a bird that you suspect is, has been poisoned. What What are the like the first aid steps that you do. Okay. The first thing you do when you go to a crime scene of uh, vulture poisoning, you secure the crime scene. Then you are many of you, because the, the most important thing is saving the live vultures. Yeah. So you just take the live vultures to the, to the shed while others are searching the crime scene if they can find anything in the crime scene. Mm. So you take the live one to the shed and you know there is a, a crop, something called a crop, like in the yeah. where they put their food okay. when they are eating. So you just uh, like search each vulture if there is any crop because uh, that is where the poison meat is stuck. So when you start milking the crop mm -hmm. and that is when you will start uh, helping them to vomit. Um, so they will start to vomit the poison out mm, through the, okay. uh, yeah, through milking. Okay. Then you can give them water. Mm -hmm. So, and also you can inject them with atrophin. That will help the, to reduce the poison inside the, the system. Yeah. yeah. That's super cool. <laughs> so when you say milking, it's basically, I guess, like massaging, it's massaging the yeah, throat massaging. so that you can take out. You the... can take out the poison meat that it has sucked in the, when it is the poison, mm -hmm. it literally faints or uh, it yeah, doesn't it have collapses, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to vomit on. So you, you will have to help it mm -hmm. to remove the crop. Okay. And you said that it takes them 10 minutes from the time of being poisoned to Yeah, die. when it's strong, when the poison is strong. Like that, uh, the previous incident, it was very strong. Mm. Yeah. That's so sad. So then after you've given them the first aid, then you take them to a facility where they can... The, we Then we have to monitor them for a week according to the condition of the vultures. Okay. And then we release them back into the wild. Yeah. If, depending we, on their condition. Yeah. During the monitoring, you have to inject them with the medicine like atrophin. Mm -hmm. because they, and also giving them water. You know, they get hydrated during the poisoning. Mm -hmm. So we, we have to give them water. Okay. And taking them every, like, after... Some hours. Yeah. yeah. Poor things. <laughs> Give us some interesting facts about vultures. Okay. Reasons why they have a long, long necks. Yeah. It's because they, when it is usually cold, they will chuck their necks. Mm. Into their bodies. Into their bodies. <laughs> wow. And also they will put their wings together and the neck inside. When it is cold, that is to make them feel warm. But when it is warm or hot during the day, yeah. they will open their wings, open their wings, mm -hmm. and bring out their long necks. That is, the, and also they will urinate on themselves to make them feel uh, cold or to uh, to 
also oh, so they the can cool down yeah yeah they yeah, 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 yeah. Themselves mm-hmm. during, using their urine interesting okay and the reason why vultures have long necks is so that they can actually reach into the carcass yeah, right yeah and during their fighting of food you know during the feeding time or there are so many that long necks of them help them when they are fighting for a carcass mm-hmm. it helps them to fight for that uh, meat okay for the carcass you have to get the the piece of meat yeah. faster yeah? yeah even if it's not just near them you know they surround they like they get all of them surround their carcass yeah yeah i think you were saying earlier when we spoke you said that they eat really fast but yeah. and you give a statistic on how fast they eat like uh, it depends with their number we were told by one of the expats from south africa his name is the andrea bota like in 30 minutes they can finish a giraffe like wow if there are many of them mm. yeah they eat so fast what's the size of the school of the vultures an estimated group what's the average size of the group okay they I don't know but they surely so mean yeah. most of them like when you find them in one place you cannot find one vulture mm-hmm. yeah it's a group a number a group of, yeah. yeah and when we find them poisoned are they in the same right next to the carcass yeah that is usually the reason is always you cannot find one vulture being poisoned because they usually go in groups yeah. so you usually find like many of them and then you know when they find a carcass they'll just be coming down in mm-hmm. so when even there is a group of vultures watching the others going down in a carcass mm-hmm. they'll just follow each other and so if if one collapses then they won't Yeah. be like oh there's something in the meat they were just continuing they just continuing like, like yeah. they finished the old carcass wow they just um, left a, a jaw yeah of the hyena they left the jaw of the hyena wow that's crazy. like they finished everything and then there were those who were they came that when others have already finished so when others were vomiting The, the late ones were eating the vomits of the others. Oh, no. Yeah. So that is where they was like, they cannot uh, see danger. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. What's the most number of vultures that we've lost in one incident? The one that I've attended, it was on January 27th. This year? Yeah. It was spotted by Eric Reson mm-hmm. that I was telling you about. We lost 25 of them. Yeah. That's quite sad. But I'm also glad that we have people like you yeah. doing this work. Because through my research on vulture conservation and protection, I came across a short article about how in India, they have lost a significant population of their vultures because they weren't quick to act with the farmers because the farmers were also poisoning the vultures it's a very common practice yeah. i mean they're livestock and as a result they've lost that top part of the pyramid yeah. which is quite sad and i'm glad that we have people like you working towards this cause so that we don't become another case study or a statistic you know it's important 
One of the things that I just remembered, and I wanted to go back to this, is your role as a woman conservationist working in the most remote parts of Kenya. Do you ever feel scared for your life? Or maybe not? <laughs> no, no, I don't feel scared. Don't scared. Yeah. yeah. Because it's so you, fun to work with animals. Yeah. yeah. You know, most of the times you have um, protection from the rangers as well. Yeah, when we go to the field. Yeah. Like sometimes I have to spend in the rangers yeah. areas, like in the conservancy, mm-hmm. to look after the vultures. Like last time we had to put them in one of the conservancies mm-hmm. in a post of rangers. So I had to sleep there for two days. Well, you weren't expecting it. No, (laughs) but I had to monitor them before some of the people came in. Okay, Okay, so like with the working in the field, it's not such a, you don't feel there's much of a challenge being a woman. When you're talking to the clans members at the, the meetings, the barazas, do you still address them and pay the allowance and just hope that one day they will listen to you? Or do you have another strategy? Do you have like a colleague who talks to them instead and then you talk to the ladies and the children? How does it work in such situations? Like uh, last year I used to go with one of the men mm-hmm. who used to know the people around. So like you'll talk to one of the men and call them, mm-hmm. but uh, I will talk to them. When they are in a meeting, they will not be able to go out. So I'll just have, but I won't talk for like one hour. 45 minutes. Yeah. It's quick, quick yeah, talk. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You're like, so hi, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah. yeah. And also, you know, when nowadays they are so up when they see like Maasai girls are getting jobs from this organization. So I usually tell them like, why do you poison like vultures? And as you can see, it's an organization of vultures that is employing me. So... If maybe tomorrow it's your kid or maybe it's your brother or sister mm-hmm. will get an employment in this organization. So I tell them when you finish all the voices, who will employ us now? Mm-hmm. So they'll just get interested uh, along the talk. That's a really smart way to do it because you're making you're making it relatable to the community that you are dressing, yeah. right? And you are part of that community. So they feel like you understand them. It's mutual understanding. And I think that's what really makes conservation most effective is when the community is actually involved in a meaningful way towards protecting and conserving the flora and the fauna because they feel empowered, right? Like, okay, this is ours and we need to protect it. Yeah. And I I like you make it relatable to them. That's very important. We're kind of reaching the end of our interview here. I have a few questions here that I wanted to ask you just in general, in terms of advice that you would give to other people who are considering a profession in the environmental conservation. Would you recommend it? And what kind of advice would you give somebody who's considering a profession such as yours? Okay, I will advise them to go ahead and pursue their careers in in professional of uh, environmentalist or naturalist Mm -hmm. or lifers or conservationist. Because, uh, you know, without, we, if we cannot uh, conserve the environment, tomorrow we'll need it. Like, 
it is the environment or the wildlife in general that it is influencing us. Yeah. And we, we are going to study that wildlife conservation tomorrow or environmental management. Yeah. You will not be able to get that job tomorrow if you will not conserve the environment. And most of the people, like, we need that, that research that most of the researchers nowadays come to the Mara to follow the photographers. But how will we get that uh, chance of being photographers or wildlifers or uh, researchers if we don't conserve the, the wildlife or the environment? So it's not that the environment needs us, it's the other way around. We need the life and the environment in total yeah. to survive. Yeah. That's a really interesting perspective because within our profession, it's really hard to get a job, just generally as environmentalists. Mm -hmm. So it makes me happy to know that you chose the profession because there are opportunities mm -hmm. for your expertise in the field and that there is a use and or a need for it. But for the most part in the environmental profession, depending on which part of the world you're in, it's very hard to find a job. But you make such a good point because it's a give and take yeah. type of arrangement. Mm -hmm. And you're right. We are the ones who are more dependent on the environment than the other way around. Yeah. And it's so true. I, I wish we could see that more. Over time, we've become disconnected from nature. I think the Maasai community are unique in that they still live in nature and they are still connected. They still know the value that it provides for their own livelihoods, right? And stories have carried on from your ancestors down to the next generations on how your community interacted with nature and prospered by living in harmony with nature. I just thought about this. What are some interesting stories about nature within your particular community? How is nature included in the traditional stories? Like uh, using of the abs. Abs? Yeah. Okay. Some of the trees or herbs, mm -hmm. people use them to take med as medicines. Yeah. Like uh, this soup, the Maasai soup. Mm. You know it? No, I do not know like it. It's not that usable without, it's not useful okay. if it, it doesn't have that herbs. The herbs, yeah. yeah, yeah. So we have to, people will not get them if they, we don't have trees around on the forest. And also, like, before people came to realize the importance of the animals, they used to go, like, from the change of one age set to another, they used to go and kill lions. Yeah. But nowadays, nothing like that happens. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people have, are starting to understand now the, the importance of nature. Yeah. yeah. The Maasai tribe are really known as the warriors, yeah. the brave warriors of um, Eastern Africa, at least. Because <laughs> they used like, to fight lions. I know. It's mm -hmm. crazy. Crazy. And just reading about how they would track the lions and how they would ambush them. Mm -hmm. That was strategic and quite genius because <laughs> lions are very smart animals and they can sniff you out from, yeah. from far. Yeah. What is the best advice that you have gotten so far in your 
professional experience, even in through school, what was the best advice you got? Okay, from my mostly from the people I work with, mm-hmm. they don't be so reluctant in what you do. Like mostly, if it's a conservation work, do it to the fullest. Yeah, and you know, most of the people have uh, everyone has a, his or her opinion. And also, we are so many organizations from the Mara. Yeah. Like, you don't have to compare your work or with, with someone else. And also, like, listening a lot to, like, from the way I've grown in my career, mm-hmm. it's uh, listening a lot to my mentors. Learning from your mistakes. Like, Eric has taught me a lot. Yeah, the that I, I I came to work with the peregrine because I came to work with many experienced people mm-hmm. in the yeah, in yeah. Their foundation. So you, you've gotten the support that you need, yeah, for you to be the best that you can be, and not to compare yourself to the other conservationists. Yeah, yeah. Everybody start. It's always we have always to start from somewhere, mm-hmm. and we have to learn from where you got a chance, if you got an opportunity, work with the people who have trusted you with the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've had an amazing opportunity and I hope that you continue to prosper. Do you have any future goals of what you'd like to do in, I don't know, the next five years? What does life look like? Okay. <laughs> in the next few years, I hope that I'll get my undergraduates. And also get a chance of getting uh, to know, to go around the world to see different. Uh, I've always been in the Maram, most, and also different parts of Kenya. So I have to go outside and see how other conservationists from other countries yeah. are doing their work. Yeah. And I think you definitely will because I've talked to some conservationists who've been given an opportunity to do like a visiting researcher type of position. I met one guy who was working with forestry conservation. He got an opportunity to go to Brazil and learn about forestry management in Brazil. And he learned a little bit of uh, Portuguese, Kenyan guy. And I was like, what? It's it's so random. How do you get to go to, you know, from Kenya to Brazil? And I just thought it was really cool that there are such programs. And he didn't have to pay for it. He got a sponsorship. I know also like some conservationists who get scholarships to do their undergrad abroad if they want to. There's definitely an opportunity there for you. And you've got great mentors. So in this last final round, what I do is I, it's called the lightning round. And I'll just ask you a question and just answer the first thing that comes to your mind. I have about four of these. All right. So the first question is, what have you read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced you? Okay, about, um, it's about birds. Like last night I was reading about um, kingfishers of the world. Ooh. They're pretty cool birds. Yeah, yeah. Very good hunters. Yeah. What, what did you learn about the kingfishers? The the difference in the different continents. Yeah. Like the ones we have in Kenya, the kingfishers from Naivasha, Nakuru. It's so hard to differentiate them because 
they have so many colors. Yes. So like that is the most uh, interesting thing about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I saw a kingfisher for the first time when I was working with an environmental organization in, in India. It was in Gujarat in the north. And it was a tiny kingfisher. Yeah. And I thought it was cool because you always see it on TV, but I never saw it in person. And it's really hard to find birds. So I was excited when I when I saw it for the first time. What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Socializing. I know so many people. <laughs> yeah. So I usually connect yeah. a lot with them. Most, like in the mara, I know some, like... I know many conservationists, yeah. guides. That is what I like about them. Yeah. Yeah. When you have an opportunity to socialize with these people, you get to learn their stories yeah. and you get to share your stories yeah. as well and kind of broaden your perspective about the world. So. so it also encourages you to go on. Although sometimes you hear someone, uh, he has a... Like experience in conservation that years, twenty years. So you are like, you are like, what? But you just get encouraged yeah. and tell yourself, I will also be there one day. One day you will. Yes, you will. And then my final question is, what is your superpower? It's a kindness. Ah. <laughs> Sometimes people tell me I have a good heart. So like I have. A good at like I cannot see myself being at yeah. And also there was a girl, one of the when I was in my internship, there was a girl we used to stay in one house. So when I used to get my like the money they used to pay me, I will not even stay in for two weeks <laughs> with the savings. Like somebody will just call me. I have this problem. Send the money. How this? So the girl was telling me. When will you grow up? Don't give everybody your Don't be kind to everyone. Not everybody will be kind to you tomorrow. So sometimes don't ha- be so good to people. That is what I usually like. I'm always too generous, too kind, but I'll have to, to stand for myself yeah, now. Yeah, <laughs> it's part of your nature. And yeah. finding that balance is really hard because you want to help people, but you also want people to not take advantage of yeah, you, right? Yeah, it is there. Like, you don't know. In Sometimes in a, in a situation, you don't know who is taking advantage of you, mm-hmm. who, is, uh, in, who needs your help. Yeah. So I think it's kindness. Yeah. 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 And be kind to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Start putting some savings. <laughs> and if you have anything left, you know, you can definitely offer it to other people. That's... We need more kindness in the world, actually. So, <laughs> And that is why um, there is a cousin of mine usually tell me, you know, people who love animals uh, have good hearts. Because I have dogs at home, mm-hmm. cats. So I'm usually following, like, <laughs> I'm usually following pages of cats in my Facebook, my Instagram, yeah. dogs. So they usually like, love animals nice. too much. <laughs> We definitely need more of that. So don't stop being you, but also look after yourself for sure. Okay, so where can we find you if we want to follow you on your adventures of saving vultures? Mostly the Peregrine fan page. Mm-hmm. Usually updates uh, 
incidences, what is happening with bolsas mm-hmm. and my Instagram account at Valerie Nasoita. Nasoita, okay. Uh, I'll include it in the notes. That's yeah. Well. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we end our conversation here? Yeah. I like to give thanks to the Peregrine Fund Organization mm-hmm. for helping me to grow in my career. Most of the people are usually so insecure to start uh, working with somebody who, has a, who doesn't have any experience with any other organization. Yeah. So I thank Eric a lot mm-hmm. for introducing me to the Peregrine Fund. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. And uh, anything to tell people about vultures? Okay. In general, yeah. we have to save the vultures. Like people usually have to get something in return to save the vultures. That is our work to do. If we do, we do not do that, who has to do the, the work of saving the vultures? Yeah. So if you have to like go to our places, see our life, we cannot do that if we don't conserve the vultures or the environment and wildlife in total. So we have to conserve them fast so we can get um, holidays to go into our places yeah. <laughs> we can get jobs and also education because yeah. we cannot get uh, like study something to come and stay at home you have to study it so you can go and work with it yeah and make a difference in the world yeah yeah mm. that's awesome All right. Well, Valerie, thank you so much for making time for me or for the podcast and sharing your story. Because like I said, we see bird conservationists on TV and National Geographic. And I think it's really cool to hear firsthand from somebody who's actually like on the ground and making that difference. And you've dedicated your life to this and it's not an easy job and you're dedicated towards it which is so rare so thank you so much for your contribution to the natural environment (laughs) thank you for your time and we'll be in touch thank you okay welcome Hey all, thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.